Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential, everyone. This is Dr. Shiloh, and I'm here with Dr. Scott. How are you? Hey, guys. I'm doing great. This is really exciting. What is? (laughs) That we're here? I know. That That you're here here with me? That I'm here on a Friday afternoon. (laughs) Loving it. No, I mean, this is really cool because we started doing this, what, a couple of years ago, Uh and we bought all the equipment that we didn't know how to use and that... All of our lovely listeners were so patient with me trying to figure shit out. Right. And what we're doing today is we are recording the entire episode on Anchor. On the app. Yeah. On my phone. Which is kind of amazing because now I don't have to lug around three, you know, or four beautiful Yeti mics. This is kind of great. Right. But, geez, this is really, really convenient. There we go, Anchor. Kick us down with some more ads. Seriously. <laughs> We're your spokespeople now. <laughs> Daddy needs some new shoes. <laughs> um, okay, speaking of, I don't know, monetary things. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible transition. I could never be a newscaster. Um, so I know it's only February, but the True Crime Podcast Festival is coming up this summer. Never too early to start thinking about that. I know a lot of folks are thinking towards CrimeCon. We are thinking July, Kansas City, Missouri already because we're really in preliminary stages of sort of prepping because... We'll be we will on be a there. speaking panel again yeah. like with uh, Getting Off like we did last year, which is going to be yep. great. So we are tossing around some awesome ideas. We already have a lot of things to pick from that we just have to sort of figure out what the heck we're going to do. Um, but it's going to be great. We're going to bring you some something awesome and interesting with our own spin. We're excited just that, I mean, although we love big cities and we love traveling, we're also really excited about this being in a solid, you know, Midwestern city that's actually very famous for a lot of reasons. There's a really couple of cool, really museums there and great food, but it's, um, it's actually going to be more affordable for many people that are coming, which is great because it's going to be bigger this year. I think they made a great call on making this decision. So So it's going to be July 11th and 12th, two days this year. It is going to be held at the Lowe's hotel in Kansas city, Missouri. And if you guys are already thinking about it, Go ahead and grab your tickets. There's still the early bird rate. So for general admission tickets, if you go to truecrimepodcastfestival.com, all spelled out, slash L-A-N-S-C, or you put in that code L-A-N-S-C, when you check out, you'll get 10% off. So just do it now and forget about it. And come see us. And please come see us. We can't wait to see everybody. This is great. So right. this week we got a really cool episode that, like like many episodes that we work on, I do a, like a superficial dive, and then I go, "Oh my God, how are we ever right. going to get this topic covered in you know seventy five minutes or so?" I know I, this is this has been on our list for a while. Um, just my interest really in this area has probably been a decade long and it made sense when we started digging into the research why that is and and we'll talk about you know sort of the trends that we've seen over the last 10 years but we're going to talk about familicide today and it does feel like a little bit of a spinoff from um, intimate partner homicide related uh, and it's totally. a subset and much much more rare thank god right um right. because it is brutal um when we're going to be talking about some really brutal crimes today so Trigger warning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but again, it if I feel like we touch on a lot of topics where there's just not a ton of research, and that's probably why it's so interesting, right? Because 
it, we're just sort of scratching the surface and or there isn't a lot of cases out there, so we don't have a ton to really do solid research on and get answers. And I think that's all we're doing when we look at true crime and we find ourselves fascinated with it is why. We all want to know why. And we turn to the research on some of these more rare things, and it's still in its infancy. Right. So let's jump right in. Um so the, just to define yeah. the term, familicide. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I, I've i seen that it is really hard to define. Not everyone's defining it the same way. Um, it's been used to talk about all types of intrafamilial homicide. But what I found was that what the literature is starting to use as a definition is when an individual kills their current or former spouse or intimate partner and one or more of the biological or stepchildren. So we have the terms like um, patricide would be murder of the father, matricide would be murder of the mother, infanticide, killing an infant child. Right. And there's even like several other more rare ones that we don't really use. And those are all sort of in the category of familicide. But right. what you're saying is in the in context of what we're talking about today, it's going to be really the parents. You know, we're talking about we're talking about parents and primarily the fathers. Right, right. I still, when I hear this, I still do think about all the other types. And actually, right. the the case study that I'm going to use today is um, not the strict definition, uh, definitely. But I think it was worth <laughs> not leaving out when we covered this. Um, but I think for for research purposes, it does need to start being defined a little bit more so we know what we're studying. Okay. And then statistics can be gained here because what we're really doing is Scott and I were trying to figure out, you know, what are the risk factors here? What, again, the why? And we want to know who, what, when, you know, what, what makes... A, a risk, or who's a risk of? How this. do you? Yeah, I mean, like like you've said many times, we're we're great at talking about how we're going to predict something, but we're not actually really good at predicting. Yeah, we're talking about not us. We're great. You well, and I are sure. wonderful, but the science as a whole. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> if everybody only listened to us, right? But um, did you find any separate definition from that, or anything that varied from? Well, kind of I mean, what I just read? not specifically what you were talking about, but sort of differentiating because it's also subsumed within that definition is murder suicide. Yep. So, but when they're talking about murder suicide, they just kind of lump everything in. So it could be just, uh, you know, two intimate partners, or it could be intimate partners and their children. But this seems to the familicide that we're going to be talking about really kind of zeroes in on the family unit. Yep. And some of the things that we definitely can pick out um, as psychologists that are intrinsic to the motivations in these cases that we found. Yeah. So that, to me, is is really fascinating. Well, and you said it's rare. It is worldwide. The, the most current research shows that really we're looking at one to two familicides per 10 million people. <laughs> right, which is great. Yes, right. yes. So when we say rare, we mean rare. Um, but that being said, even if we go back, I think it was, is it the, the Violence Policy Center? So I'm looking at one of the research uh, papers from 2007, which uh, clearly that's 13 years old, but that was uh, within the U.S. There were 1,108 murder-suicides in the U.S. And what we're talking about, which is very significant, is the 
vast, overwhelming majority of those are perpetrated by men. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say with the familicides, especially in this literature review that I found that looked at 67 studies spanning 18 different countries, almost all were by men, and over half of those incidents, they did end up taking their own life as well. Um, And absolutely the most common method was by firearm. So there are some other ways that they've done it, but again, that brings us to sort of the issue of gun control, especially here in the United States, because they do see a correlation with countries and then within the United States, states with stricter gun laws where the prevalence isn't there. So it's low-hanging fruit, I know, when we talk about, you know, um, uh, um, these being... Um, a manner of death, but, but they, I think it's important to consider. Right, and they do, they get a lot of attention because they are so brutal. Mm-hmm. So they attract a lot of attention, and especially even though you're talking about um, the use of uh, firearms, there are other really violent ways that are used as well, such as fire. Like we're seeing fire a few times using stabbing stabbing vehicles. Um, But I think one of the things that you're talking about that I really want to emphasize for our listeners is that we're talking about the perpetrators of this type of violence who intend to take themselves out as well. Right. They, They definitely are are all considering the suicide aspect of it. That That's the particular nut that we're going to get to as far as like psychological underpinnings, mm-hmm. as opposed to someone that we, want, we could probably touch on in another episode about a guy who decides, I want a new life, and my wife well, and kids are staying. I'm going to get rid of them, and I'm going to move on. Okay, so... Uh, you have an example. Actually, your historical example is a little bit about sort of freeing someone, someone freeing yeah. themselves from the family influence, right? Right. Okay. right. So um, is it safe to say that we're not going to end up leaning towards information with like a Scott Peterson or a Chris Watts? That seems very different to me. Does okay. it to you? What well, do you think? Well, when I hear Family Annihilator, that's what I think. Definitely. <laughs> Okay, that's a good differentiation. Yeah. But you know what? I didn't when it I is, read it, I didn't look at it that way. It's it's interesting to kind of look at the difference between those two yeah. because I know before we even started we we're talking about narcissism and I think it can fit into both categories, but probably the one where the person doesn't want to take themselves out as well. But yeah, anyway, I, I, it, I think that there's some point at which or maybe it, I mean I was going to say maybe at some point in the process the individual their cognitive process or their reasoning process diverges wildly. Mm-hmm. And it seems like maybe the Chris Wattses and the Scott Petersons were kind of always on that road anyway. I don't know. Yeah. We'll figure it well, out with hence, the research. Hence yeah. the reason why this is so hard to define, right. too. Exactly. So Because all of these things are fitting underneath this umbrella. Um, so I want to just take a couple things that I've pulled from the research that I think starts to give us an idea about the mental framework and what might be going on here. Um, Not necessarily risk factors, but with these perpetrators, there's, the studies have found that there's, there's significant stressors going on, whether it's health problems, clearly relationship problems or financial difficulties, um, those seem to be prevalent. I also saw themes of 
the it's a long-term relationship with the spouse and that he has this very patriarchal and possessive perspective of his family. Absolutely the same thing I found. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that that's giving us a little idea of of mindset here and also where it's being I think assumed a little bit but it's not it seems spot on to me that the primary victim is usually the female spouse the partner but then the children are killed because they are seen as an extension of that partner which we're going to talk about and we when we go into the inherent narcissism, and there's a term right. called narcissistic extension, yeah. which is exactly what you're describing. Are you ready to jump into that right now? You I don't know. Wait. What do we want to do first? Did you talk about risk factors? You talked to over the... No, did you cover not all yet. Of them? Um, well, let me... Okay, so... Let's, yeah, touch Yeah, let me... So we talked about that, thankfully, the prevalence of it is overwhelmingly low. It's just that it's such a, a brutal crime, and especially when we look at crimes that are perpetrated against children, that's always something that is incredibly jarring to people. Um, and um, building on what you said, you know, one of our, our big guys, Dr. Uh, Dr. Park Dietz, love him. I'm that glad we mentioned We mentioned last, last time, time. Yeah. yeah, and he's, you know, He's really a, 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 a well-respected and has come back from a little bit of controversy. But if you read his stuff, he's a really solid researcher and, and, and wonderful writer. But, you know, echoing what you said, these perpetrators, they have an over-idealized sense of family values. So it's very rigid. It's very concrete. It's very, you know, to use a social justice warrior term here. It's a very patriarchal mm -hmm. view of defined, rigidly defined family roles. And it's not surprising that someone who is very narcissistic and sort of relishes in being the center of that family unit would fall prey to like, well, this is my only, my only way out. Right. So, um, I also uh, got some great research by Jack Levin, who is a professor of sociology and criminology at Northeastern University. And he wrote a really fantastic book. It has a very salacious title. It's called Serial Killers and Sadistic Murderers Up Close and Personal. And he uses the term, like you were talking, um, a family annihilator. It's usually the husband or the father. Um, it's and we're always talking about family units. We're not familicide. We're talking about if not um, direct blood kin, then a stepfather or you know a blended right. family. But it's all about that unit and the family annihilator. He kills. Um, the entire family unit, not just the wife or one of his children, but he goes for every member of the family. And sometimes the motives are very clear, and we'll, we're going to explore those in a little bit. And sometimes it's it's not very clear. So um, I love how Levin sets that up in that article, and we'll put all of this in the show notes because if you're ready for a deep dive through some pop articles that go into research papers, we give you yeah. links to all those. There's a ton. Um, so. Richard uh, Gellis, who is the director of the Family Violence Research Program, did you yep. read his stuff? He really splits it into those two definitive types, which is overly enmeshed, suicidal husband, who cannot dis distinguish between himself and his family. Right. So and, and that's and dangerous right there, like that loss of identity. Just enmeshment, when we talk about it in clinical terms, mm -hmm. um, very poor boundaries. Um, 
sometimes even, and I think more for this case, where they're seeing the family members, again, is almost like their property. So sort of that possessive piece that we were talking about before. Um, but we use a measurement in a lot of different ways with a lot of different family relationships, which you can probably explain much more beautifully than I can, having family systems be your background. Um, but when there's just maybe an unhealthy closeness, <laughs> well, I think is you said how it, I think the, about it. I, I, don't, I don't know. The, thank you for that compliment, by the way. But I think that the direct and succinct description of it is just incredibly poor slash porous right. boundaries. Um, you know, we, we usually describe it most of the time we talk about enmeshment in terms of overly protected and overly overly protective and overly involved mothers right. who, you know, just are so helicoptery and so involved in their family's life that they they aren't really fulfilling the parental role and and respecting that distance between being a parent and having your child, letting your child make mistakes, letting them learn from their mistakes, and letting them differentiate. Yep. Um, so there's there's some things that get set up in that that enmeshment that keep um, an individual from fully developing into a a fully realized separate entity. There's yes. all these overly overly enmeshed, I hate to use a word to define a word, right. overly connected um, relationship. And a dependence yeah. back and forth. So we have the overly enmeshed suicidal husband, and then we also have the controlling, angry man who feels in some way that he is losing his grip on his family. And that that ideation can come from anything, come from financial means, like someone who is rigid about family roles and suddenly the wife is making more money right? or is rigid about family roles and he has never let his wife work and now he can't provide for them and he's, you know, thinks there's no other them. alternative. There are, yeah. He just has, has thought himself into not believing that there are any other alternatives. Mm -hmm. So, um, now... What do you think about talking about revenge as a motive? Like, are we, is that's kind of outside the bounds of like, if, are we talking about the intact family unit? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I think it would be, I think we need to include that if it's a former spouse or okay. there's some estrangement there. Um, and in those cases, it, it probably is quite different. It might be about revenge or, again, it, that's going to fall under a category of anger. Right. Just maybe in a different way and there's already been some separation of the family, but I think that that warrants a place okay. in Familicide. So, I mean, that it certainly, and some of the other writers, um, especially Levin, was talking about that as a motive mm -hmm. for, mm -hmm. you know, supporting the actions of the two previous prongs that we talked about. But then there's also, so we'll just to, to take a little deeper, revenge, like the, the killer believes that his spouse, whether male or female, is responsible for everything that's gone wrong. Right. So on one hand, it's like this over-identification with I'm the patriarch, um, I'm, I've am i got the, the top level in the family, the wife comes next, the kids are underneath. Well, then if we flip that and it turns into a situation where maybe the the woman or the female partner has become too empowered in their view mm -hmm. and has separated or realizes that, you know, the marriage is not working, move on, revenge is that motive. Now... Which feels like the intimate partner homicide. It's absolutely. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Dave Navarro's mom, like that. Right. Whole 
um, storyline for sure. And what's weird to say is that as horrible as that is, I think everybody can get it. Yeah, like, I agree. We can get it. Even if I wasn't a clinician, I would kind of go, oh, well, it's totally screwed up, but I get where they're coming from. Yeah, they're channeling the anger at that one target. Right. And then the flip motive that Levin talks about is this bizarre, completely twisted altruism. So when the motive is, and altruism is like that sort of, well, everything's gone wrong. There's no way that this is ever going to be fixed. And since I can't fix it and nobody can fix it, my family would have to live with the shame of this. They're in pain. We can't pay the bills. I can't provide for them. And they couldn't possibly survive on their own without me. Right. So I'm just going to take everybody out. Right. I mean, it's like I use the term mental gymnastics so much, but that's really an example of it. Right. right. It's it's in very hard quotes, protecting them. From their standpoint, they are. Right. They're protecting them from right. whatever. And if we talk about, like, uh, Andrea Yates, uh-huh. I mean, now that's going afield because she clearly had severe, severe depression and psychosis right. and was having hallucinations. And she had really psychotic religious ideation. But her belief was, my children are possessed. Mm-hmm. I am saving them mm-hmm. from the devil by killing them right. so that they can't grow up to be demons or whatever it was she was believing. So it's that's somewhat akin to this. Like, the killer, okay, he's convinced that he no longer has the ability to take responsibility for his wife and his kids. So maybe... Maybe he has lost a job due to economic reasons. That's an interesting thing we have to come back yep. to because it's not that I know. I common. feel like we keep talking about that. And we're like, well, we're going to get back to that yeah. and dispute it a bit. Um, so he just feels like he's never going to be able to get the footing that he had before. And so this just becomes a very toxically logical means of getting out. So right. um, what what's crazy about this from a mental health perspective is, and Levin and the other researchers talk about this, is these men are not actually mentally ill. I mean, they're certainly, I mean, if, I, if you had to put a, like, a, I guess a <laughs> diagnosis, it'd be an adjustment disorder, or maybe they've moved into delusional thinking. Yeah. Um, but they're not psychotic. They're not, it may no, be not a psychotic, psychotic belief. Right. Right? But I think there's a help... I don't want to say healthy. Okay, what do I, how do I want to frame it? Um, I think there's a good deal of depression that's going oh, on. Oh, yeah. So when we say mentally ill, we don't mean the worst of the worst, psychotic you know, um, issues going on or delusional disorders, even though it kind of dances around that. But, yeah, there's some depression going on. And they even talk about how, you know, from... A dynamic perspective, you know, we have the id, the ego, and the superego, and they talk about, like, these individuals, when they've done forensic profiles on them, they have a functioning superego, which means that they are capable of experiencing remorse, and the remorse is expressed in the suicide notes. Like, every one of them says, I'm really sorry I'm doing this, but it's the only alternative I have. Now, they are hitting that dark 
triad mm-hmm. in narcissism and manipulative behaviors. Almost every one of these uh, cases that we read, they were always described as manipulative. Right. Even if the neighbors said, like, wow, I never would have expected of that family. They were manipulative in that sort of patriarchal, very um, concrete way of looking at the family unit. Ugh. I'm just having, like, flashes of Josh Powell and the kids and all of that. Yeah. Even though it happened at different times, Susan disappears and then it gets dragged out and, you know, eventually he kills himself and the children, but it's all lining up with what we're talking about right Right. now. Right. And what I'm surprised at seeing, I don't know if Levin says this because he's more of, he's a sociologist rather than a psychologist, but he's saying, oh, there's not a personality disorder. And I would say, no, I think that Mm -hmm. this is a combination of severe depression and a personality disorder. And probably these people have had some modicum of success financially, but then they hit this wall. I mean, I I run into this all the time where people come in and they they don't understand why they can't keep a job, and they have no insight into their behaviors at work right. that are ridiculously sexist or manipulative or homophobic or whatever. They just don't get it because they have no insight right. into their own behaviors. Um, what what is what is very telling is all of these cases are very methodical. Uh, it's all thought out. Planned um, to a T. Planned, right. yeah, absolutely. So it's not that they're like spree killers. They're not... Um, not impulsive No. in the way that we see other violence happen. And you would expect it would take some level of planning, especially if there's multiple victims involved. Um, and not wanting that plan thwarted as far as having to systematically take people out. Right. Unless it is something like a fire and explosion where you can kind of just all go together. Right. But yeah, there's got to be some planning to it if they're going to execute it successfully in their eyes. Yeah. Um, one of the lit reviews that was exclusively focused in the U.S. I thought was really interesting because it talked about how the commonalities with these men were that they did tend to be highly educated. Um However, there was psychological instability manifested by things like depression, personality disorders, you called it, um, self-destructiveness in other ways, as well as themes of substance abuse. Oh, was it primarily substance abuse? Because that's what Park Dietz was talking about, too, is like he talked about a trigger that there was always like one trigger, which might have been a job, a loss of a job, something that was kind of an anchoring effect. Right. But that the ones he was looking at were all tended to be self-medicating, self-medicating their depression with alcohol. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Some other offender characteristics that were found, generally it's going to be men between the ages of 35 and 43. Um, Isn't about, that interesting? Yeah. That's oh, like and almost that's, like kind of, it's not the younger, like the 25 nope. to 35 that we see for the impulse Well, and think about right? it. They have to, I, I think the, I have here victim characteristics. The average age of the child victim was between 7 and 12. Oh. So you have to be in a partnership with a child at the age. So... Mid-30s to yeah. early 40s makes sense. Um, the the adult victims, so the female partners, it was even a tighter range, like 35 to 39. Wow. Um, but there was, and, and the numbers, again, there's big ranges here. So, again, bear with us because the, the research just is, is not 
really tight. They're robust, but um, they're saying 22% had been diagnosed with a substance abuse disorder. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of that. There is um, some. It varied between about 13% to almost half in various studies. These are this is a combination of a bunch of different studies where there is some sort of history of at least mental health treatment happening, and really lower numbers like I don't know 17 to 20 percent of the offenders had some sort of psychotic or paranoid symptoms so but I think that varies from country to country also you know this is looking at 18 different countries right and there's a lot of cultural we don't even have time to go into that but that's there are some certainly some countries that do exhibit it more Southeast Asian countries um, where there's like a sort of an intrinsic overlay of honor Mm -hmm. and responsibility to the family seems to exacerbate that happening. Very, very true. Um, I just want to see if there's anything more of victim characteristics here. Um, It didn't... there was nothing about, you know, male versus female children or who was targeted more at all in that case. It really didn't, gender didn't matter um, in those terms. Um, however, stepchildren were victims a little bit more significant or more often than biological children. God, so, what do you think that's about? Well, I, I would like to see details on that because I'm wondering if it's if they didn't have any biological children, but there was a stepchild involved. Not that they're picking a stepchild over a biological child, but just it's easier to kill my wife and her kid. There's a little bit of removal there than it's okay. my biological see, child. See, that's interesting that you looked at it that way because I looked at it like it would be easier to kill a stepchild because it would be easier to be angry at them that I'm letting that I'm possibly letting down somebody that's not even my biological child my biological child would love me and understand unconditionally right so right. I've got to take out this person that represents someone that's not going to yeah. understand everything I've done for you to bring you in the family I'm just riffing I d- like, yeah I don't know, you know I, I, I kind of go back to um sexual offenders and to act out against someone who is not your blood or a direct relative, it feels like there's a little bit more of a buffer there. And so it allows for more for for them to for justification justify justify what they're doing. Like it's, she's not well, she's not my blood daughter, right. so it's not that bad. Yes, Oof, yes. Wow. But I don't know. Yeah. So, sort of, I, I touched on narcissism. So let me. I know we've you know circled around this concept many times through episodes, but just as a refresher, um, that narcissism is. Um, it's the individual's psychological pursuit of gratification from admiration, an egotistic admiration of what that individual's idealized self-image is. So this individual, the narcissist, is constantly t- reaching and searching for validation of this really expansive, over-idealized version of self. And there is no room for flaws. There is no room for kind of accepting that one has flaws. 
excuse me, because it just doesn't compute. So anything that comes in the way of that reflection of perfection is highly problematic. Um, We've talked about the dark triad before, so um, narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavelli. Jeez, that's <laughs> I can't a believe system. I just did that. It's late in the afternoon. Machiavellianism <laughs> is the dark triad, and then so even further down that road of looking at narcissism as being one of the driving motivators is when we talk about narcissistic parents, and narcissistic parents are really invested in the reflection from their children and obtaining behavioral reinforcement from their children because they actually see the children as extensions of themselves. Yeah. So it's almost if you were kind of going to take a an image of your your children are like your arms or your hands. They're they're your limbs. And of course they're supposed to move and react and support you and do what you need them to do virtually just by thought and you don't really see them as individuals capable of having other opinions and if they do start exerting other opinions you do everything you can manipulating uh, the situation manipulating the individual to get them back into that stance and they really really need it right. I mean, they, they need this this is a need based on what they were brought up with and their style usually their parenting style results in the kids just like I'm out of here mm-hmm. you'll see what we call um, satellite and orbiting children where they're like we'll we'll leave the family unit home and move as far away possible right um, Cut them off. To, to get away so um, there's a really creepy term that's called the narcissistic supply and it's almost like this flow of energy that feeds the narcissist's well-being and functioning and it's it's like a drug they need that constant flow of energy from reflection and they will find careers they will find many relationships they'll find interpersonal relationships that feed it either on a very small level or a large level and you know, they'll do anything to right. preserve that. So um, Hotchkiss and Masterson uh, are two really prolific psychiatrists who have written about narcissism. And they talk about, um, they use the term, the seven deadly sins of narcissism. Um, and I'm just going to go over it really quick. Shamelessness, magical thinking, where they see themselves as perfect, they distort and sort of elude themselves into this magical thinking, and they project or take everything that could possibly be wrong with them and project it onto the people around them. So it's like, idealize self-version and get rid of the worst of me, you know, put it on the people that are not my narcissistic extensions, by the way. And then there's arrogance, envy, entitlement. So entitlement, I think, plays a, a big part of these kind of crimes like I'm entitled to do this it's not about like taking people's lives I'm preserving their entrance into heaven or I'm preserving them protecting them from dishonor like you were saying shame Um, exploitation and really really poor boundaries so I just thought that was fascinating how to like boil it down to those seven concepts and how that really feels um, germane to these guys oh one I forgot envy Oh, of course. You know, so really seeing somebody else succeed financially in life is going to be a real blow to their ego. Right. um, If they're unable to provide or or have these other um, mitigating factors towards the crime. So 
does the magical thinking, do you think that's pretty um, involved once that it is flipped and the, the family members are no longer feeding that supply? What what role do you think the magical thinking plays into committing an actual act of violence or crime? Well, to, from, from my yeah, perspective, yeah. is I think the magical thinking serves the purpose of justification. Gotcha. It's not, and it's even more so than entitlement, because entitlement is sort of baby aspirin mm-hmm. compared to the magical thinking of like, well, of going to that place that that moves the individual into a, a psychotic stance of, of course, this is a perfectly acceptable alternative. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's uh, that was uh, very evident in one of the cases we're going to talk about. Did you want to go to cases um, or did you want to start with our historical one? Yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that. That's what I've been wanting to do for a while. Um, mostly German because I wanted to read this book <laughs> and fit a way, if it, find a way to fit it into an episode. Um, but I finally got around to reading The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson. And um, I'm going to back up before I talk about the book because the book is really mostly about the trial, which is kind of a cool insight into turn-of-the-century criminal justice system. But let's talk about Lizzie first. So Lizzie was born July 19th, 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts, where she lived her entire life. She was born there. She lived there. She died there. <laughs> um, and you can visit there. You can go stay there in bed and breakfast. I know, Lizzie which Borden I home. would love to. Yeah. <laughs> um, so her father was of English and Welsh descent and came from a wealthy and influential family. Made a really good living for himself as well for, through a variety of different businesses, but mostly as a property developer. Um, but he was very notorious for being very frugal. So they're this wealthy family, yet they kind of live in not an undesirable area of town, but it's also not the best. And he didn't have modern plumbing or electricity in the home. So these... Which for that time, if you had money, that's the first thing you would have is running water in a toilet. Absolutely. So he refused to put those in. um, And it... So he has two daughters. He has Lizzie and he has Emma. And then when they're adults, their mother dies. And within three years, Andrew Borden remarries Abby. And essentially, the girls are now adults. They are, by the time the crime happens, in their 30s. So they're these spinster women of the turn of the century living with their father and their stepmother. Um... And so, you know, going back to kind of being frugal and not having some of these luxuries that they're seeing their friends and other peers have, it really starts to paint a picture of what it was like in that home. They're probably think that they're entitled to, to some, entitled to some more luxuries that they're not getting. There might be some resentment building up with that. There's a stepmom that they refuse to call mother or anything like that. Um, very religious upbringing. And 
and here they are stuck in their father's home, and if they're going to be in their father's home, he basically tries to still very much set rules for them. So there's a lot of tension in this home. It was described as... You know, they didn't even eat dinner together, meals together. The the girls kind of lived their separate lives. There were a lot of locks on areas of the home where they would kind of just stay as separate as possible um, and stay out of each other's way. But all the money's tied up in dad, and he's not doling money out for the, his girls to go live on their own or anything. They would they would take little trips here and there to try and get out of the house, or if there were big family arguments. But it was tense. And and was it, didn't this take place in the summer? Yes. Okay. It did. It so did. that's one of the things I'm going to want to talk about. One of the movie <laughs> so versions, hot. right? Is that it's very hot, and that this movie that I love from the, the television movie, yeah, is they just really focus on how uncomfortably hot everyone's got a bead of sweat. Yeah, and that. well, also in the dress <laughs> the clothes, at that time, yeah. you know, like women wore high, um, Collar. high collared, you know, very tight. They wore corsets made with whalebone, um, and you know, that house which is now like a very nice bed and breakfast, it's a Victorian-style home with very small rooms. Right. Like, really crappy air... Um, flow. You know, the airflow works if everything's open, but it's notable, like you said, the dad and the stepmom had this weird thing about locking doors. And so here it is, a family of four in this relatively small Victorian home. Right. If half of it's locked off, where are they going to go for any privacy? Right. Like, it's just, you can just tell there's a, a tender keg. Exactly. Boiling here. And there's also a live-in housekeeper, Bridget. Oh, right. I forgot about and her. And so there's really five of them there. Um, so, yes, summertime, August 4th, 1892, when Lizzie is 32 years old. Her father and stepmother were found murdered in the home when only Lizzie and Bridget were home. So, Abby, the stepmother, is murdered in her bedroom while her husband is out for a walk. And then he comes home takes a nap on the couch, and that's where he is found murdered. And we have photos of that. Like there they, are they, photos. It was one of the first times they start taking forensic crime scene photos. Yes. So Lizzie, like I said, is home. Bridget is home. Bridget is up actually taking a nap because she didn't feel well. And Lizzie finds her father and basically screams out, Maggie, they called Bridget Maggie. They used to name their servants whatever they wanted to. <laughs> Who cares? What's your name? That's great. Your We're gonna name call is you now Maggie. Cindy. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Lizzie just screams out, Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. So she's the one to find him. Um, they then realize that the stepmother is dead upstairs as well. Supposedly, Lizzie was out back in the shed. She's She changed her alibi a couple of times of what she was doing. Um, but supposedly, she was out in the shed looking around for some stuff for a while. And um, there had been some threats to the family from, you know, people who Andrew had taken the land back when they couldn't pay off their loans and... Um, Lots of lots of things going on as far as, you know, maybe some possible threats towards the family. But essentially, there's not only just the alibis, she had incredibly bizarre behavior, and her story changed a million times. There's just a lot of contradictions. And several days before the murder, the entire family was ill. Poisoning? 
don't know. Well, there's another thing about that that's in one of the things that I read uh-huh. that they were so cheap that if they didn't finish dinner, right, he would in total mommy dearest fashion that would you they would have it for breakfast, lunch until it was completely gone. And right. what he had they had he had made Maggie slash Bridget make for dinner one night was mutton. Yep. So mutton, and then they ate that several days. Several days. Right. So it could have been just freaking food poisoning Absolutely. from exposure to the heat. There's Absolutely. a great scene in the movie I like where she's just talking about how awful it was to have to eat that mutton day after day, and then they flash back to it, and there's like flies all around it and stuff. Oh, God. It's awful. Well, that would make you want to kill anyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the day before <laughs> the murders, uh, Lizzie was supposedly at a pharmacy trying to buy a certain type of poison yeah. that she said was for is for cleaning her 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 seal skin capes. Um, that was her reason for wanting it. But and she did have seal skin capes, but they actually didn't sell her the poison. And that's what you do in the middle of summer is get, get down and right because I need my seal skin cape. <laughs> I need my. Uh, Maybe she wanted to clean it with the caustic poison so that it would then air out before fall. Thank I mean, you. We're going to give her the benefit okay, of the doubt. Okay, defense attorney, Doctor Scott. I've learned a lot from Jessa. And <laughs> so with all of this, it she ends up getting arrested, goes to trial, and. And she's acquitted of their murders. And the... Did they catch her burning a dress? Oh, yeah. Yeah. She burned a dress. Um, there, there's a lot of a lot of stuff. But they also couldn't figure out how she didn't have any blood on her, even if she got the dress off. And they had all these different theories of that she may have committed the murders in the nude. Yeah, that's um, one theory. That she had, like, down in the basement, she had taken off her dress, run up the stairs with a hatchet, taken both of them out. This nude hatchet-wielding spinster? Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah, 32 years old <laughs> spinster. God. I know, I know. <clears throat> you, this book, I'm telling you, like, it, it paints a picture of just how ludicrous it... Oh, well, and she was on her period, so, I mean, that's induces craziness in women, too. That was also... I'm uh, not even going there. Yeah. I will get... You, oh, yeah. You can say that. I can't say that. Because I, no. there, were, there were actually... There were bloody rags found oh, okay. downstairs. There's no DNA testing back then. <laughs> so she said that it was her monthly illness. Okay. Well, that, that's a pretty cool defense, then. Right. So it's not... Right. They can't prove it's not her blood. Right. So... Exactly. Um... But the authorities, after she was acquitted, never brought anyone else up for charges. Um, she lived in Fall River her entire life. She did not move away to get away from this. She actually, her sister moved out and she changed homes. Um, and she inherited a lot of money. Sure did. And she lived, apparently she lived like a, a, a much better life, but was an outcast. Right. Like a social pariah for the rest of her life. Right, because she, she was very involved in the church in adulthood and and ran some women's groups, and that was no longer something that she was able to do afterwards. But I, I, I recommend the book to really get a good idea of what it was like to have this intense, high-profile trial going on in the turn of the century. I mean, you really, I mean, that's when they really talk about the heat and all these people cramming in to this courtroom. Women were fainting. They were 
it's crazy. It's like modern day. You know, they're trying to rush in to get a seat and they're getting trampled on. And every day, Lizzie has a bouquet of flowers, like a different one. It would describe that, you know, the journalists just like it salaciously. They loved her. Yeah, they because that was the that was big news. And she showed zero emotion. You know, we've yeah. talked so much about emotion during trial or how people are supposed to react and they were recording everything. Um, and really the first time she ever broke and gasped um, and then later on I think she did actually pass out was when they brought out her parents' skulls when they were looking at them in the courtroom as exhibits. Um but it's it's really interesting. You really get a good idea of what a case of the century was like back then. Um, and it's fascinated people for over a hundred years. Um, there's a writer. His his name is Edmund Lester Pearson. He was a crime writer. And three years before Lizzie died, he kind of, I love this quote because he talks about trying to explain the true crime frenzy, which is what we talk about a lot now with true crime, definitely, you know, having its moment. He says, quote, there are in it all the elements that make such an event worth reading about since in the first place, it was a mysterious crime in a class of society in which such deeds are not only foreign, but usually wildly impossible. The evidence was wholly circumstantial. The perpetrator of the double murder was protected by a series of chances, which might not happen again in a thousand years. And finally, the case attracted national attention and divided public opinion, as no criminal prosecution has done since, nor to the best of my belief has any murder trial in the United States has ever done before. So it's really sitting back all these years later um, and this crime writer is trying to explain why did this capture? Yeah, and it, you know, and also the the shockingness. Of it. I mean, like the idea that it's a family murder, and right, and I think that you know they explored a lot of the motivations, and probably we will we'll never really know. I mean, if it was just as simple, she had odd behaviors, uh-huh. and so maybe she wasn't eccentric for that time and just got and when nobody snaps clearly it's you know the pathway to violence is an evolutionary process but maybe you know it built up there may have been levels of abuse that none of us are aware of that she didn't bring up in the trial that's definitely been speculated about um other speculations later on were you know maybe she committed this in a fugue state um, so go back and listen to our episode about dissociative disorder to <laughs> really get an understanding of that and how she could be so stoic and staunch in her um, innocence. But, yeah, there's there's been a number of different types of speculations as to motive. Listening to it, I'm like, yeah, of course she did it. <laughs> but it, it, as that writer said, it is absolutely circumstantial. So um, do you know the Lizzie Borden nursery rhyme? Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her father 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her mother 41, or did I reverse it's the other that? way around. Okay. But yeah, that's good. So the movie version that I like, which is another talking about how damn old I am, is uh, back in the probably the late 70s, Elizabeth Montgomery, who was Samantha on Bewitched, oh, right. she played, after that ended, She, Elizabeth Montgomery as an actress became 
she was also like a big producer. She's a very powerful woman in, in Hollywood, and she was the queen of the TV movies. Uh-huh. And they did a Lizzie Borden that was really, really creepy. I remember watching it as a child, and she plays her just with that flat affect right. and, you know, sort of seeing, you know, you just, like you were saying about the heat, you really feel mm-hmm. the heat. And her father was portrayed as very overbearing, and you got a sense that there was just a real feeling of being trapped, and maybe this was the right. only way she felt she could get out. I would love to watch that version, because I watched the recent one with um, Chloe Sevigny and Kristen Stewart. And you know who plays the sister is, um, who's the actress from Alabama that was in Fear of the Walking Dead? She was the lead. Oh, Did I you love talk her. to her at the gym? Yeah, I just talked to her at the gym, and I'm blanking on her name. I'm blanking on her name, too. She's she was, from, like, the best person yeah, in the she's, movie. she's from Huntsville. Yeah, she's so great. Um, she plays a sister, but, um, God, it was incredibly slow and boring. Yeah. But essentially, in that, they take the stance that... Um, Bridget, the the housekeeper, is being sexually abused by the dad, and then she and Lizzie form a romantic relationship, and then there's this, um, well, you know, motive to take him out because he's a pretty awful person. Which is um, not necessarily, you know, I- impossible. No, at I don't all. think so either. Um, they were the only two home when it happened. Yeah, there's another. Um, there was a series, was it on Netflix, where Christina Ritchie call, played her? I think it was on for remember. two seasons, and that was sort of really stretching it out oh, and, and, really? and fictionalizing a lot of it. But what they mm. also went into is how, you know, she was really isolated afterwards, you know, oh, like... And that was one of the reasons, like, one of the theories is that her that was why her sister moved out. Her sister was kind of chronically in poor health, and mm-hmm. she moved out. She's like, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You know, I'll see you once a year for holidays or something. Right. But, so we um, need a festival in Fall River so we can go stay at the B&B. Oh, that would be great. Somebody get on that. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> it's at 90- Kim Dickens. I just remembered it. Oh, Kim Dickens. That's you. her name. But the um, house no. is at 92 2nd Street in Fall River. No, I didn't just remember it. I had to look it up on IMDb, so I'll be completely honest. <laughs> um, so that was sort of an offshoot of what we talked about. It was like Certainly that's a family member, and it's using uh, an example like you were talking before, a blended family members, mm-hmm. except that was patricide, matricide right. you know, example. Um, and I wanted to give an example uh, of other... Example, give more examples uh, in popular media. So uh, one of the ones, of course, you know, as I've said before, I love science fiction and uh, horror. And in Stephen King's novella, The Mist, which was made into a movie, um, gosh, what year was that? 1980? No, it was not 1980. No, no, no. 2007, right. So 2007, um, it's very, very faithful to the movie, and a military experiment cracks open a dimensional doorway, and all these absolutely horrific, horrific monsters are coming in through the mist, and it's just this family struggling to survive, kind of like in a Fear of the Walking Dead way, mm-hmm. except that everything, just people are just dying right and left, and it's bringing out the worst in everybody that's involved. And at the last scene, it is um, the lead actor, Thomas Jane, and he's with his wife, 
his two children and a woman that they've grown close to and trying to survive and they're all trying to they've gotten safely into a car and they're driving through the mist and they can you see things walking and splattering all beside you know on the windows and everybody's just tired and 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 terrified and exhausted and he makes they make the group decision that they're all going to die right you know so he has a bullet for each one of them he kills every one of them and right as he's about to turn the gun on himself the mist clears and military van shows up oh. and they've, they've been able to take care you know like wow get they're rid saved. of the monsters yeah so having to sit with you know having killed your family awful now on a sort of a lighter well, but he really was protecting them let's go to that mental gymnastics place. Yeah, I guess. And I guess if the, it's a group it decision, way. I'm okay with that. Okay, group, group decision. No, important. <laughs> that's a very important... Um, if there's uh, a vote taken, yeah, okay, better okay. than him. You so, know, we always say, like, just take yourself out, buddy. Why do you gotta take everyone else yeah. with you? And uh, now taking it the other way to Disney, that Disney actually has um, oh, side. Yeah. Um, the television series Once Upon a Time, which is a really great mashup of all of the Disney fairy uh, tales, fairy tales yeah. based on, of course, Grimm. Right. Um, Grimm's fairy tales and other even older sources. And one of the, the ongoing themes in Once Upon a Time is that you know, magic is access is accessible to anyone if you want to study magic, but there's always a price. Yeah. And if you're an evil, if you're really going for ultimate evil power, if you're going for power, in order to, to achieve that level, you have to kill who you love the most. And so the evil queen in this, and there's a scene where she rips out the heart of her father so that she can have, you know... Ultimate power. She can have ultimate power. You know, she can get all the, the magic, which is really, okay. really scary. And then there was a really great slasher movie in 1987 called The Stepfather. Do you remember that? Nope. Terry Quinn, um, Terry O'Quinn from Lost. And he plays like this perfect stepfather. And he's he basically just keeps... He's a, like a psychopathic narcissist. Uh-huh. And he keeps coming into these families with single moms and, and children and he just he's perfect right until he's not perfect until right. the family is not the perfect family unit and then he slowly kills each one of them yeah Ooh. and then of course sort of the granddaddy would be the shining sure so Jack Nicholson is you know under the influence of possession by the haunted hotel and he attempts to take out his family so those are some great interesting presentations all maybe not so much with the mist but all pretty good examples of sort of narcissism right we are back so you may have noticed a little difference in sound quality. We've changed environments. Um, as much as we bragged at the beginning of this episode about being super savvy and doing this all on Anchor, <laughs> um, we did, and it was great. We just didn't capture the last part of our audio. So um, 
we're doing it for you now, and here it is. <laughs> well, and also, yeah, but this is a good thing for anybody who's considering using Anchor because I still think it's an amazing um, program and app. Right. In um, the first hour or the first 50 minutes of our show this week was all recorded in a relatively soundproof environment. Right. Uh, what's called an interrogation room. Um, we are now at Casa Scott. Right, right. Um, where but we we're still these? doing it on the app just on my phone today. So we're trying it out all sorts of different things. Make this as easy as possible on us. Yes. <laughs> all right, so we're going to jump back into the last part of our episode. And um, what we wanted to do was uh, reach back around to examples, uh, trying to stick to West Coast examples, one here certainly in Southern California. Um the first one, which absolutely meets the profile criteria that we were speaking about in the earlier segment, right? Um, yeah, a strong sort of patriarchal structure, family, uh, pretty rigid, defined gender roles, um, sort of really a concrete way of living. Um, the other example is going to be. Another tragic and horrific example of familicide, but not fitting necessarily those gender role norms. Right. So very, very interesting contrast. Yeah. So the first one that we um, are talking about is from actually a suburb of Los Angeles called Wilmington. And this particular example is of Irvin Antonio Lupo. And it's an example of milicide. It definitely fits the category of mass murder as well as a murder-suicide. And um, it is incredibly tragic. And as I sit here and provide you with the information, um, you know, it's, it's shocking to think that this man, uh, Irvin Lupo, took the life of not only his wife, Anna, but their five children. Their five children included Brittany, aged eight, twin girls Jasmine and Jasley who were age five and twin boys Benjamin and Christian age two. I mean, oh my gosh, all under eight and so many kiddos. I don't know why I'm having, I mean, it's completely normal to have any kind of reaction really, but the reaction I'm having now is really pretty intense. Like just those, those poor kids. Yeah. Well, and I, I think of, you know, putting myself in their shoes to be parents of five kids all under the age of eight, how incredibly stressful that must be. And the pressure to provide on top of just, you know, whatever psychologically we're talking about with him. Um, but what a, a just has to be a tense environment all the time. Yeah. And, and what, I mean, it, but it also fits exactly sort of this formula. I mean, as you have said several times in, in various episodes that, you know, we have a lot of rubrics and we try and do our best to prote- predict those that are going to be prone to violence, but we're, we're not always that great at predicting. And yet here's one that really fit that profile. Sure. So without having any idea about any kind of mental health history on Irvin, um, what we do know is that to the outside world, they were doing really well. This was a couple that bought uh, a really nice house in a nice neighborhood. They were well liked by their neighbors. They were con- they were described as easygoing. And um, it just, everything flipped very quickly. And it seems like once the flip happened, what that flip revealed was that things were not so great. Right. And 
Okay, as we're recording, folks, we're also at my house, so now we've got leaf the blowers. leaf blower coming it's a, through. It's a Monday morning. <laughs> so sorry about that. It's all right. Anyway, maybe we can edit that out. Yeah. One of the things that it seems like the trigger for this was Irvin was employed by Kaiser Permanente. Uh, both he and his wife, Anna, were uh, fully employed, and which means that's a great job. That's benefits. Right. You know, full... Good stability with that's, that company. Right. And Medical there's, company. And it's even gotten better in the past decade, but mm-hmm. then it was, was not so bad. However... What were their jobs? Uh, I believe... I believe he was like an x-ray tech and she was doing some kind of filing. However, one of the things that happened was they both lost their jobs and they both lost their jobs at Kaiser because they allegedly forged a supervisor signature on a childcare application. So what they had done was, or allegedly they had falsified records regarding their income so that they could qualify for a child care program run by an organization called Crystal Stairs, which is a nonprofit child development agency. It's in West L.A. Um, near the Kaiser campus where they worked. So, How could you not qualify with five kids? <laughs> Something just feels like messed up there, but... Well, and, and that awful. that plays into something that comes up a little bit later that there they did have extended family members. So there was a net Work. I'm not saying that, and that's not always the answer, certainly, to right. like say, hey, we're working, we need you to take care of our five kids. Um, but uh, it seems like in interviews with family members afterward, there was a lot more support there right. than the Lupos were actually taking advantage well, of. Well, and I guess what I'm saying is you wouldn't necessarily have to falsify documents. You have a great you're, you would be a great candidate for childcare if you have five kids. So what else is going on there? Are they just trying to hurry along the process? Is there some psychopathology there that's like, eh, we'll just fudge these? I want to get, the, I, or I want to get the best deal. Well, it, right. it seems True. like, and I mean, obviously, you know, what's available online, you have to be be very careful. And we're pulling from, I'm pulling from a Los Angeles Times article. I'm pulling from Murderopedia, which also has uh, some other investigative sources in the um, reference notes. Um, interestingly enough, this in, this individual does not have a Wikipedia page, which considering the the depth of this particular case is a little bit surprising. Hmm. But um, they were both uh, um, x-ray techs. I thought she was a cl- um, like a, a clerk, but they were both x-ray techs. They were making $40 an hour. Ooh. And what they did is they falsified on the record that they were making 7 to $10 an hour. Oh, gotcha. So, um, you know, when you work for a big uh, corporation like Daddy Kaiser... Yeah. You don't pull that kind of stuff. Nope. Um, so they got back to them. They both lost their job, which I can imagine was shocking. Um, and then after the crime occurred, what they found out is their financial situation um, was not great. Um, so they started um, bouncing checks. It doesn't indicate whether or not they were... Uh, on purpose, so it's not like they were kiting checks, but they had kind of gone full bore into buying a house, kind of starting this upper middle class life, American I guess, dream the American life. dream, right. and they couldn't afford it. Yeah. 
So there were property taxes. And for those of you who are listening that don't live here in California, look, I love living in California, but the property taxes are Insane. are quite astronomical, even for people uh, who have low income, because all property is very valuable here. So um, there was preparation involved in this. Lupo wrote a series of letters. Um, he contacted family members um, indicating that uh, I need you to put all my stuff in storage. I mean, so it was like a bit cryptic and family members were like, wait, what's, what's going on? Um, and then the one particular thing that, well, there's a lot disturbing about this, but one of the things that was said, um, is that Lupo asked his uh, friend, uh, uh, Mr. Ramirez, to mail all these letters to family members. And um, Lupo said to Ramirez, and Ramirez actually, I'm sorry, it was his brother-in-law, your sister and the kids are dead. What? So he reported to his brother-in-law that um, they're dead. I'm sorry. I had to do it. Um, we love you, and I'm next. And then he hung up the phone. So he had given directives to his brother-in-law. Oh, my gosh. But also just the, the, the cruelty involved in this. Of like, I'm going to tell my brother-in-law that I'm killing his sister. Right. Very, mm. very disturbing. And so um, he went on to kill his children, kill his wife, kill himself. And, um, you know, there was a, a, interestingly enough, there was a suicide note and it's quite long. And to me as a clinician, it's pretty telling it's, there's a lot of, um, self aggrandizement uh -huh. and expansive, you know, um, view of oneself. What I definitely, these things that fit the bullet points of narcissism. Right. Um, but he, and the way he starts it off is to whom it may concern to start off about this tragic story. My name is Irvin Lupo, my wife, Anna Lupo, my eldest brother, Brittany Lupo, eight years, my twin daughters, Jasmine, Jasley, five years, my twin boys, Benjamin, Christian, two years, four months. A very interesting way to open up a letter, like just this sort of proclamation of who I am and who we are, and then goes on basically to write this excoriation of Kaiser for calling him on his crime, right. his bullshit, basically. But what he does in that typical defensive narcissistic way is he makes it all about being the victim sure. in this situation that Kaiser just took advantage of them and he made multiple attempts to rectify it and contacting HR and like what's amazing is that this is a suicide note and it's basically a manifesto yep. of how people have hurt him. How so, he was wronged. Right. And he's not talking about the 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 death of his children that are going to be at his hand. It's all about how they've been wronged. So, and this is, I won't go through all those. It's available online. There's four paragraphs of absolute bull. And then the last paragraph. So after a horrendous ordeal, my wife felt it better to end our lives. And why leave our children in someone else's hands? In addition, it seems like Kaiser Permanente wants us to kill ourselves and take our family with us. They did nothing to the manager who stated such and did not attempt to assist us in the matter, knowing we have no job and five children under eight years with no place to go. So here we are. 
Irvin Lupo. And then handwritten at the bottom of that typed letter is, Oh Lord, my God, is there no hope for a widow's son? Okay. So number one, Kaiser does not want you to kill yourselves and your children. Well, I, you know, I skipped over that. Is there, he, he reported that the manager said you should just kill yourself. Uh, so, still? Okay. And which may or may not be if true. If that even right, happened. Right. And number two, you're going to put all of this on your wife? You know, she made the decision. Oh, okay. And <laughs> you're the one writing the letter. You're the one... That's the sole survivor, actually, up until the end. If you killed everyone for, oh, my God. So, go, you know, looping back to where we were at the beginning, a perfect example of the financial issues, which are not always reflective of what's going on in the economy, but certainly that was at 2009. Sure. So, interestingly, like... Huh, I wonder if they got themselves in the subprime mortgage oh, fiasco. I'm they sure. bought an overbought a huge house. Right. And I don't want to I mean, yes, he committed a horrible crime. I don't want to like necessarily kick anybody when they're not here to to give a, another opinion, but like doesn't sound like he made the greatest decisions. Like, you know, maybe if you have mm-hmm. five kids, you need to be really conservative about sure. how you're going to even if the two of you are life. making forty dollars an hour, right? Still, that's seven people you're all providing for, right? And yeah, there there was probably a lot of um, bad decision making there, or they're just not good with money, not smart with money, like some couples could be. Are, so. And by the way, this is Southern California with one of the largest populations. There are lots of places to get jobs for X-ray techs. Yeah. There are tons of jobs. So maybe it's not going to be Kaiser, you know, with all the benefits, but there's plenty of places where they could have gotten work. I mean, well, and I wonder how that, if they are fired, if their chances, especially falsifying documents, uh, places may not want to touch you because of that, you know, dishonesty. um, Well, remember, though, that the law is you can't reveal why someone was fired. Like if they call for, yeah. Well, okay. I know in law enforcement. I mean, they could do a background know, check, right? If somebody, if, yeah. yeah. Like if they did a background check and saw if there was any, did did Kaiser file any charges? They might not have. They might just said, "You're True. done. Get out." Because there could have been some criminal stuff pending. It doesn't sound like it. I mean, I don't think you found anything saying that they were going to be facing charges over this, Mm-mm. but they could have. Um, but anyway, you know, I don't know. Maybe just having to explain why you left your really good job at Kaiser would oppose enough of a problem in their minds to say there's just no way out of this. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I would think so. Um, it and apparently it really, really shook up the entire neighborhood. Oh, you know, it just awful. completely, you know, they, because all also that there was no indication of child abuse or anything like that. It was a clear or presenting as a sort of a happy, yeah. lucky go, and clearly family. there's other choices. There, he's reaching out to his brother-in-law. There's other family members that. I mean, they could have killed themselves and still known that the children would have been taken care of. I mean, right. that's that's just going back to 
some narcissistic extensions, it, which the, the opening of that manifesto, you named it, because he basically says, I am, he says his name, and then the rest of the family. It's so weird the way he yeah. words it. and then turning it around like, this is who I am. Oh, but it was my wife's idea. Yep. You know, that, there's a lot going yeah. on with that. So, um there's another case that's just from last year, and this is the one that really takes uh, a wild uh, shift because it was a lesbian couple here on the West Coast that had actually moved around all over the country, and it was called. It's basically the Hart case because um, it's it. It seems like the main perpetrator in this particular case was Jennifer Hart. Um, Jennifer Hart um, uh, is known also for. Uh, being very prolific on social media in the past under the moniker the Heart Tribe because she and her wife had adopted um, several children. Um, what a perfect name. Like, that's so catchy. The Heart it Tribe. Is. I mean... It, it is. And it's like also, uh, you know, it's even a little twee, I guess. In a way, it's like sounds like a the premise of a CW show. It does. I mean, it really does. I think it is. <laughs> and if you, if you, another one that is incredibly tragic, because if you log on and you see their um, public life through the lens of social media and personal curation, I mm-hmm. mean, like really curating their lives as if it was a museum or just this sort of wonderful life, these children are just adorable. I mean, they're adorable and, you know, they're, I mean, looking at it now, it's a little chilling um, because you look at the pictures of the children adopted by these two white women, which, you know, looking about that, it's a little bit problematic. You know, I kind of look at it, but you know, they're dressed in like stylish clothes and you know, they just have like way more hipster than I could pull off. Absolutely. But once again, it's that curated life. Right. And wasn't there an image with one of the boys? There is Devante. Yeah. Devante, um, a photo from 2014 at the Portland, um, was it the black lives matter? I'm not sure. It was involving the police, but there's this this picture that is just devastating of Devante sobbing and hugging a, a policeman. Right. You know, I mean, it's like a, a beautiful photo. It went viral. But that was just the tip of the iceberg mm. because apparently the hearts, I don't know if I want to, I mean, like, I don't want to go too deep into gendered roles, you know, and even going further into male role norms, but the idea that this this family, this um, same-sex family, took one person's name. Right. They didn't hyphenate it. I'm not making any judgment on it. I just think it's interesting. Does it seem like there is a more dominant personality? Jennifer Hart seems to be the more dominant personality. There's something to her. I mean, look, there's not, you can't make complete predictions from looking at someone's photo, but you look at the photos of her and she's got quite the the hypomanic smile in many pictures. And unfortunately, a crime like this, the impulsivity that it ends up um ends up sort of encompassing certainly fits the profile of um, probably some significant mental illness. Probably, I mean, to me, it looks like a combination of a mood disorder and, and, you know, that narcissism that we saw in the Lupo case. Right. So um, Jennifer and Sarah Hart, they were both 38 years old and they were found 
posthumously to be responsible for the deaths of their six adopted children, as well as their mutual suicides. And um, Jennifer Hart basically piled the entire family into their SUV and drove it off a cliff at high speed. They did a tox screen on her remains and found um, her blood level to be 0.102. So it's the equivalent of about five shots. Mm-hmm. She had no history of really drinking. Right. That's a lot. Yep. Sarah Hart at the time had 42 doses of generic Benadryl in her system. She'd be out. Oh, I, I, knocked out. Like, I, that could kill you, actually, Good. that itself. I mean, I, I could take half the Benadryl and I'm out for three days. Right. Which is just, I got what a weeko I am. <laughs> what they were able to do in Sarah's case is they were able to do a forensic extraction of data from her phone and um, get her Google search. And her Google search um, revealed questions such as, can 500 milligrams of Benadryl kill a 120-pound woman? Oh, that's very specific. It's very specific, followed up by, is death by drowning relatively painless? Oh. You know, which, and then I think they found through the extraction that she had tried to delete her search history, but they were able to find the stems Mm -hmm. and and reconstruct it. So um, it was also found by uh, consultation with other family members and people that they knew that they would basically give Benadryl to their kids when they were going on long trips, which is just in case anybody want, you don't do that. And these kids are like, you don't drug your kids. No, Well, yeah. (laughs) Maybe that should be the name of the episode. Yeah, yeah. don't drug your kids. Um, but these kids, I mean, their age ranges are what, like early teen? Um, I think Marcus nine. was Marcus was nineteen, Hannah oh, was sixteen, okay. Jeremiah was fourteen, Abigail fourteen, Sierra twelve, and then fifteen. Uh, Devante was uh, fifteen years old. Oh, okay. But. Devante is interesting enough. His remains were never found, but he's presumed dead. So there's also some conspiracy theories out there that they might have, that might that's that she might have killed him at another location. Right. Um, and the reason they have that is that this family had multiple DCFS um, cases cases in multiple states. So it's basically. The same kind of pattern would happen where they'd move into a neighborhood, they'd be living somewhere, and the kids would the kids would reveal that they were being treated poorly. Especially um, what it turned out, uh, Devante was slipping out at night and going to a neighbor's house to eat um, because he was just apparently famished. And this neighbor that was interviewed said Poor that baby. that food restriction was used as a way of um, punishing them, of punishing the children. So now, with all due, I mean, it's a horrible crime, but with all due, due respect, um, it is not uncommon to see in adopted children who come from abusive families where food was restricted at an early age. It's basically part of their brain says you're hungry all the time because True. you're trying to stay alive. It's it's that could be what it was going on. Right. We we don't know, we don't about know. All these children's backgrounds. But. I do find it like really if you look at all the most recent pictures and you you're aware that one of them is 19, none of them look over 13 years old. No, they're that's always why dressed very hipstery but very young. I was trying to guess their ages from looking at the pictures, and they do. They present as much younger than the ages that you listed, 
And that also takes me back to the Turpin case here in California where they were essentially starving their children. They just ate slices of bread, sometimes peanut butter and water. And there were 16-year-old girls that looked like little dwarf fairies that appeared more like they were nine. Yeah. which was way more drastic, but uh, I but get what you're saying. Thank God somebody did a, a safety check on that one, on the Turpin. I mean, because oh, we, imagine well, one of the girls was, escaped. It was inevitable. It yeah. was inevitable that somebody was going to die if that, Absolutely. if she had not had the wherewithal to save a throwaway phone. Well, that's a whole, we'll it, do it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. I will say this they're on Stitcher. Um, there is a podcast called Broken Hearts, and it is the collaborative effort of investigative journalists looking into the history of the Hearts relationship and how they got to the place where they decided to adopt six children. Um, I really highly recommend people listen to it. It's it's really great. And Is it, it a tough listen? I didn't think it was necessarily a tough listen, but I, you know, I think as if you're listening to our podcast, you're interested in mental health issues and sort of characterological issues that define and motivate people's um, decision-making process. Yeah. And I think that's really shown in this. So they had been all over the place. They had started off in Minnesota and um, one of the DCF charges there left them like they just kind of picked up and left. Um, They were in the Pacific Northwest for a while. Sarah was um, working at a retail job and Jennifer was a stay-at-home mom. I don't know what kind of, I don't know how you would make enough money in retail to support that big of a family, that would be really, really difficult. Unless, Interesting. perhaps, maybe, um, huh. maybe um, social media. You know, if she was sort of getting influencer maybe. type money, as possible. Um, in 2018, I jumped out her bedroom window, and um, she had made it over uh, to the neighbor's house and begged them to drive her to Seattle. And she was looking very thin. She was missing two teeth. And then this was prior to Devante being able to get out of the home and go to the neighbors on multiple occasions oh, wow. asking for food. So it was really by the time they decided to take out their entire family. I mean, it was really closing in, like multiple cases from DCFS. Right. It's really, the it, pressure's on. Exactly. So it's March 2018 now, and based on that neighbor being super concerned, a social worker made a visit, and instead of, like, fixing everything, their their response was, well, we'll just kill ourselves, you mm-hmm. know, and we'll take them with us. And um, they, you know, just, it looks like they just packed up the kids, and it was, once again, sort of, it looks like Jennifer's decision-making process is looking at if I can't have my life and my children the way I want it, then there is no alternative. Yep. So I'm just going to end it. So rather than risk losing custody, I'm just going to take my family out. Right. So Benadryl for everyone. The kid had, kids had Benadryl in their system as well. Yeah. Right. And then I, I think it's also interesting that... You know, it's not like they all just take an overdose and go to sleep somewhere. She drives the van off a cliff almost to also have this possible version out there that it was accidental. Like, we went off the road and we all died. It's this big family tragedy. So it's it's almost as much of a sham as their life was. It seems like it, yeah. Like, you know, going out in a blaze of glory. I mean, right. that's sort of, sort of a recurring theme in all of these. But once again, with that 
you know, always hooking it into that characterological presence of um, narcissism. Mm-hmm. So again, mm. just tragic. Um, I highly recommend the the podcast. You know, uh, it goes for saying in regards to all of our listeners, if you're ever concerned about the safety of a child, call DCFS wherever you are. Consult with somebody. Look, if you're worried, call a therapist that you know. Speak to a teacher. Speak to somebody that's a mandated reporter. But if you see something, say something. I mean, err on the side of caution. Absolutely. I always think, what is the what if, like the worst scenario if I didn't? Right. You know, do whatever this extra step is. Um, that will lead you in the right direction every time if yeah. you're on the fence about it. But I, yeah, this we've talked about so many different ways and definitions and examples of familicide. And I don't know, I think after doing this, I think familicide should sort of be this big umbrella and maybe not even have its own definition. But then these murder suicides, the family annihilators, whether they kill themselves as well or not, um, and just take out their family. I think all of that should fit underneath. Yeah, because there's, there's even this that subsection of, of men who take their families out, but then either fake their own death or they go and oh, start a whole life. Yeah, over, you there's know. that too. But um, what a wide variety of, of different types of offenses and uh, psychological issues going on. Yeah. So I have, before we end, a correction from our Killer Nurses episode. Oh, we have great. one of our Facebook uh, followers, Leslie, wrote in, and she's catching up. And she was listening to the Killer Nurses episode. And you talked about Donald Harvey in that episode. He's the angel of death from um, Ohio. And she she lives in the area. She says she drives past Drake Hospital all the time, and it kind of freaks her out. But she said he's no longer eligible for for parole because he was murdered in prison. Oh, what, what <laughs> in year was 2017. he? In 2017. Oh, wow! So that's recently. Yeah, okay. pretty recent. So um, I definitely wanted to get that in. Um, I also wanted to share kind of a fun thing from just this past Friday night. So it was really like the first hot day we've had in a while and people lose their minds when it gets hot. (laughs) So as, as we were leaving work, um, one of my colleagues was actually out on a jumper over at Hollywood and Highland. Did you see that on the news that night? So I get home, you know, family goes to bed and I'm trying to find it on the news to see if it's still going. And actually (laughs) the news is broadcasting a live high speed pursuit, which is like my favorite thing in the entire world. (laughs) It's, it's one of the best parts about living in Los Angeles is that we have so many freeways. They happen all the time. time. And actually have a friend that, um, used to work for me at a clinic in Orange County and she and I love high speed pursuits. It doesn't matter what time of day it is, we will text each other and be like channel 9. And she has figured out on Facebook how to actually start a watch party and invite friends and then we all watch it on Facebook together. I'm not that savvy, but what I did is we that We can do it from our Facebook page. I know, I know. But what I did is I started just live streaming on our Instagram account that night. Okay. And pretty soon um, I was trying to be quiet because my family's asleep, but I'm like typing, hey, where's everyone from? We had people from Australia. What? And like Michigan. And so we just watched a pursuit on TV here in LA on a Friday night <laughs> together. <laughs> and this guy was just bonkers with his driving. And then he ended up um, driving into the casino down in Commerce and wow. running inside. And then he took a taxi and they lost him. 
so we're like, ah, no resolution. Oh and the next morning, he was still outstanding. So did they catch him yet? Do you know? No, I don't think so. Oh my god! As of the next morning. Okay, so there's your tip. Take so a if, cab. <laughs> take a cab. Run into a very crowded public place and take a cab. Um, but anyway, I thought that I'd share. That was kind of a fun way to engage with. We should our do that people. more. We we got. I know that like. Um, uh, one of our listeners, I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm blanking on his name because he's one of our prolific listeners, and I sent him a T-shirt. Um, but he was talking about we were going to do a watch party with one of the movies, like oh, because oh, right. uh, the color of midnight <laughs> right. was we color were doing. Of night. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you guys. This has been episode 37 on Familia Side, and we will see you very soon at the end of this month on our next episode. And this is Dr. Shiloh with Dr. Scott. And this is L.A. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye-bye.